The Gist is sponsored by the Netflix original documentary series, Chef's Table. Go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. The series is directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 28th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the news today, not this. A plane landed safely at Dulles Airport. That is not news, right? The plane, which took off on time, featured an in-flight Julia Roberts movie that was a lot better than critics would have led you to believe. It also featured plenty of unoccupied middle seats and tiny cutlery for the in-flight meal that actually cut the chicken. Not news. That is not news, right? The good stuff, the stuff that we expect to happen and to go right, that is not news. Like this. Here is news. UN peacekeepers accused of rape and sexually assaulting children. That is news. Here's something that's not news. The United Nations Universal Postal Union allowed mail to be sent from the Maldives to Malta within days. Mail to be sent from Bolivia to Bali in over a week. That's something the UN does. No one ever pays attention to it because it's not news. All right, we have established the ground rules, but I want to tweak it about what is news and what's not news. So today, this was news. Whoopsie, the government sent some live anthrax through the mail. So that is news. That is a mistake, a deviation from the usual. That's news. But I think that news should also be this. The U.S. government has anthrax. Sure, I believe in knowledge over ignorance. Sure, I believe in knowing our enemy, studying it, watching out for the next outbreak. But why do we have this anthrax? Why are we regarding this anthrax in the same way that a a Pez collector looks at his stock and looks at eBay and says, eh, Maybe I'll give this a go. That should be news. The regular non-newsy stuff about anthrax, like when anthrax doesn't go wrong, I still want an investigation of what the hell are we doing with the anthrax, even the dead anthrax that's not being sent through the mail. I mean, the only time the words inadvertently and anthrax should go next to each other is like in a sentence... Okay, we inadvertently scheduled Megadeth to play before Anthrax during the Monsters of Pestilence tour. That is it. I want news about Anthrax, the regular dead, non-ship through the mail Anthrax. Give me that news. On the show today, I spiel about some of the candidates. They're just like us. And Baratunde Thurston comes by to talk about how to talk about race. Like this observation. You know, it's mostly white men who wear pagers attached to the outside of their belts. Is Is that okay? Can I say that? I don't know. That's why Day's here. He wrote a book called How to Be Black. He has a podcast called About Race. The man is qualified. But first, beer, a short history, which we make even shorter from the stage show. So I was about, I'd say, 12 or 13, and I didn't like the taste much. Then I revisited it a little bit later. Yeah, I liked it maybe a little too much. During my college years, I wasn't discerning, but I certainly imbibed. And then I acquired a taste, first for the malty, then for the hoppy. Remember, Pete's Wicked was my first entree into a very good beer. Now I still really like Sierra Nevada. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my personal brief history of beer. But who cares about me? We care about a show that is running off-Broadway of the same name, Mike Pesca's Brief Hit. No, it's just called A Brief History of Beer. And the people behind the show are Will, Glenn, and Trish Parry. They're here to tell us about the show and to tell us about beer. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi. Where'd the idea come from? 
we were in a pub in Stratford-on-Avon, uh-huh. uh, and we were discussing what the next uh, show would be. We just closed a show, and the barkeep was like, you guys should do a show about beer. Right. And we were like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start some research now. Uh, let it be known that Will has just done the drinky drink motion. And uh, at Stratford-on-Avon, when someone suggests you do a brief history of beer, do they suggest it in iambic pentameter, Trish? Uh uh, no, I think at the time it was more it was more just a joke, um, you know, but we started actually doing research and going and reading and drinking uh, heavily, of course. <laughs> you started drinking heavily up till then. Uh, up, well. <laughs> Teetotalers. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, eventually, after a few months of theoretical research, we um, had read some stuff at the British Library and realized, actually, compared to a lot of our friends' work, uh, not to disparage it, <laughs> beer as one of the most important aspects of uh, human civilization. What are some instances where beer helped people? But for beer, how would history be different? Well, some people say, a lot of scholars say that we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for beer because there had to be a reason for man to settle down to farm barley. A lot of people say that we wouldn't have settled down to um start agriculture and thereby cities without beer. So that's that's something pretty important. Beer helped us through the ages when uh, water was often unsafe to drink. Mm-hmm. People didn't realize that um, the boiling process of creating beer and the alcohol in the beer were um, killing off these microbes. But they, they were doing that all the time and saved countless souls from disease and and early death. Uh, in Britain, uh, beer saved people from the gin. Oh, yeah. Um, like, uh, basically, after everybody was basically dying in the streets uh, from gin, um, they raised the taxes on spirits and lowered them on beer. And so, actually, it did the same thing in Australia as well. Beer saved people from the rum in Australia. It's It's a nicer, easier way for people to have fun without going nuts. Beer is like liquid methadone in that way. (laughs) You don't have to have a clinic. You just uh, tax it differently. Wow. Fascinating. Now, why do you think, do you think beer is, I do think a little bit beer is a reflection of a national character. And yet I, I think Americans are a bit more interesting than the mass consumed beer would have you believe. Why do you think Americans for so long have liked such crappy beer? There are a number of factors at play there. I think chiefly advertising and regulation. As the larger brewers grew and became more wealthy, they did what all corporations do, which is to try and get a larger share of the market. Mm -hmm. And one of the main ways that people did that, starting around kind of the, the period between the two world wars, was to mass market and and advertise. And for the first time, um, people were being sold a a lifestyle instead of just a thing that they might be able to use or that they might enjoy to consume. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world, regulation has a a large part to do with it. The way that the distribution system works favors the larger breweries, the, the ability to make and control or or influence connections with large supermarket chains and things of that nature so and and you can keep prices down of course when you're brewing on a scale like InBev brews you know there are many brands i think the crappy beer reflects the capitalistic nature of of america sure and it reflects the influence of puritans of blue bloods and it reflects the uh, Mm -hmm. uh disproportionate influence of 
you know, when you get the ball rolling in some forms of legislation, it's hard to ever reverse it. But if you look at the trends now, mm-hmm. microbrews are going through the roof oh, and, yeah. and Budweiser and Coors are not doing well at all. Yeah. So that's that's heartening. They're sort of jumping on the the wagon, though. Um, um, it's an increasing trend, and I mean, I suppose it's been going this way all along. But uh, the large breweries, Sab Miller, InBev, they're buying these sort of well-known and trusted craft yeah, breweries. Like I think Mean Time was just oh really Goose Island. Goose couple? Island is I'm InBev. Oh geez, yeah. Miller Coors just bought uh, Mean Time in the UK. Uh, so you've got this sort of attempt to kind of capitalize on the. Integrity, maybe. I don't know if that's too yeah. strong of a word. But sure, or, or no, the, but they take you know. they take the uh, the brand name and what that means. And, yeah. But I think for us, the the attraction to uh, local or craft beers is more than just what the beer tastes like, or you know the, the the quality of the beer. Although it is often much higher, but it's also about love. Yeah, well, yeah, love and Community. ethics, I guess. Yeah. Will Glenn, Trish Parry, they are behind A Brief History of Beer. May 31st is the next one at what's the theater? Uh, under St. Mark's. Under St. Mark's. Go to St. Mark's, go underneath, then you'll find it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of The Gist is brought to you by the Netflix original documentary series Chef's Table, which offers viewers the opportunity to go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary, or if you prefer, culinary talents. The series is directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. So what makes a chef? Is it signature dishes, kitchen experience, culinary or possibly culinary training, personal heritage, or is it something else? Step behind the scenes for an up-close look at the amazing journeys of six culinary superstars from around the world with Chef's Table, a new documentary series from Netflix. Each of the six episodes features an acclaimed chef from a different region of the world. Ben Shuri from Melbourne, Australia. Magnus Nilsson from Yerpen, Sweden. Francis Malman from Buenos Aires. Nikki Nakayama from LA. Dan Barber from NYC. And Massimo Bottura from Modena, Italy. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. There is this notion that you just can't have a conversation about race. Sometimes white people say that. And before I even let you answer if you think that's true, I'm going to diagram the sentence and say there are two frequent responses to that. One is I have heard it argued. That's all we talk about. What do you mean we can't have a conversation about race? That's all we talk about. We're obsessed with race in this country. But then go back, remember, to the original premise that it's hard to have a conversation. There are examples. Louis on Saturday Night Live talks about how he's racially uncomfortable. Gets a little bit of flack for it. He's very funny. He's a great communicator, so maybe not a lot of flack. But other examples where Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, you know, admits to being a little bit racist. If, if I see a black kid in a hoodie and it's late at night, I'm walking to the other side of the street. And then has to apologize for that because in admitting he was racist, people were like, hey, dude, you're racist. So <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's uh, there is truth to the idea that it's hard to have a conversation about race? Yeah, it's it is hard to have a conversation about race mm-hmm. in a country that doesn't equip you to do that. It's hard to talk about something when you don't know what you're talking about. That's that's a good when point. you are afraid of offending or, or being offended in response or being attacked in response to what you say. Right. So we haven't created a common foundation, like a common vocabulary, a common language, 
it's kind of like just dumping someone into uh, like level five Spanish class and they don't know what words are. But once we get to that place where we have the equipment to have that conversation, we'll probably need to have that conversation a lot less than we do now. We skipped ahead in the U.S. when it comes to like problem solving. And we like to pat ourselves on the back and like, hooray, we did it. Magic Johnson, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Kanye, right? Yeah. Beyonce, go. Look at the Barclays Center. There's a black person inside of there owning mm-hmm. a tiny, tiny piece of it. And, of course, Barack uh, Obama. So all those feel like A pluses on the report card of racial reconciliation. Yeah. The challenge, of course, is that it's not quite that simple and that those singular achievements don't like allow us to escape the day-to-day problems that we still have in terms of the outcomes. And how we explain those outcomes is where a lot of the tension comes in. But there is also, I think, the very real thing where people will jump down your throat. Mm -hmm. I think that happened to Mark Cuban. I look at his intention of, and I'm just using him as the example. It happens quite often. Someone says something that maybe isn't perfect or maybe isn't awkward. I think he should be applauded more than he's not, but I don't know. I perceived it as he was equally derided as a a Well, and, and, and that, you know, I wrote this book called How to Be Black, and the idea was to dive into this. To this. Thank you yes. for reading it. It didn't help for me. But, yeah. um, well, I mean, it helped, but it didn't. You know what I mean? Like, you got something out of it. <laughs> yeah, you didn't yeah, get yeah. black out of I it. I didn't get black out so of it. So it was a yeah. false promise, uh, right. which I acknowledge on page zero. <laughs> but the idea that, you know, there's an excess of defensiveness and fear and concern and a bit of an excess of offendedness at, like, we have to have some space. Learning is a painful process. Education involves mistakes and errors, science, things blow up all the time, and we keep sciencing. So we should, as, for example, black people, I think there is room for a well-intentioned engagement in a racial conversation to be given a little bit of space, some margin, some extra runway to, to watch this toddler, you know, in Mark Cuban's case, a toddler at racial conversation, stumble drool, knock himself in the head, and maybe poop himself. Yes, yes. Right? Like, white people are going to poop themselves talking about race. That's part of the process. And as uh, the caretakers often, uh, literally and sometimes figuratively, kind of certainly more experience experiencing race directly and consciously, uh, we have an opportunity. uh, Allow that and not necessarily clean up after them, but just be like, okay, so you you shat yourself. Okay. So now let's talk about that. And not just blow it. Like, how dare you shit in my house? Like, okay, that's not encouraging them to keep sort of trying to walk. So the two analogies you used, I think, are instructive. (laughs) We keep sciencing and the toddlers who shit themselves. (laughs) Now, in both cases, the people who are invested in those things are are nurturing. They want it to succeed. Their their intentions are right and good. Scientists, parents, you know, good parents. With the racial conversation... I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Not only do you have, you know, the sides of it politically, you all it's also mediated by a media who would just rather have people yelling and would just rather have fire than noise. Yeah. And even the if you, whatever the cable channel is that you most like, that's most aligned to your racial attitudes, mm-hmm. they'd rather have a person blasting someone than a person talking about what you were just talking yeah. to. I mean, one of the reasons that the show about race was born was because each of us, Tanner Colby, Raquel Cepeda, and myself, have been in the fray. We've been in the cable news fray. We've been in the Brady Box arrangement of segregated boxes, separate Mm -hmm. uh, and equal, on air, talking to people, maybe sitting next to us, but presented on television as if they could be anywhere on the planet, stoking conflict and cutting you off, cutting each other off constantly. Oh, and two seconds or less, 
what do you think about Ferguson, Missouri? Like, come on, that's just, you're not interested in a real discussion, certainly not a conversation, which involves listening as well as talking. But that's, I think that's what's different about the world you just described and the world we're trying to create, is that the three of us are not so diametrically opposed that we can't come to the common table, but we're not the same. What do you do in just a casual conversation? What are some, you know, rules of thumb to get past the, I'm going to assume you're prejudiced or I'm going to assume you're ignorant or I'm going to assume you think black people are a monolith or all the things that get regular people in the way from having a decent, a more decent conversation? Basic general rule, so helpful, especially online, assume good intention. Okay, that's great. It's very easy. You know, we project negativity onto comments a lot and we assume that this person's out to get me, that they hate me. And sometimes it's very clear. If they're threatening your life, if they're wishing ill upon you, if they're publishing your address and yeah. doxing you, and like, they don't have a good yeah. intention toward yeah. you. The salutation, dear N-word, for right. instance. Right, like that's an not, indication. There's no love there. Tell, I mean, though they I call did say dear, right? <laughs> and even dear N-word, like there's an option there, right? There's potential love there. So assume... <laughs> that could be the title of your next book. <laughs> dear N-word. Oh, a collection of essays and, and resp- it's actually a good collection of like comments. Yeah. This is a great idea, Mike. I'm going to talk to my, uh, my literary agent. Okay. So, so assume uh, good Yeah, yeah. Write a book that can never possibly be stocked on a shelf. <laughs> That's what they said about how to be black. Uh-huh. All right. We're oh, going to keep really? pushing the envelope. The, um, the other, I think, I mean, listen, right? Just shut up is a great rolling conversation for a while. Try not to make it just about yourself. And I yeah. think this is particularly... When having an interracial conversation, when one of those races represented is white, there's a tendency to be like, I didn't, I never. Yeah, but I never. And right. I don't th- yeah, yeah. It's not about you. Yeah. Right. It's about the system. It's about the results and the outcomes. And I don't see that as a, I think there's a way for both participants not to see that as a criticism of like, you're selfish for making it about you, but rather, I'm going to free you of the burden of having to carry that. It's not about you. Is about something bigger. We're all sort of in this system together. Yeah. And if a listener hears that and says that's impractical, I do think things change, and I think people can be educated about good ways to mm-hmm. talk about things that you might think are a compliment, calling a black guy articulate. And now people generally know not to do that. Mm-hmm. Although I think that jumping down the throat every time when you compliment a black person for making a good point doesn't necessarily... That may be a little bit oversensitivity. It's a... It's a um, when you look at, like, the cumulative, it's exhaustion. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a black person who's been complimented on my articulation, which is astounding. Like, oh, yeah. I speak so good. It's the shock registry of, like, f- parenthetically for a black person. <laughs> right? It's like, you are so well-spoken for one of those people. Yeah. Uh, I met a woman at a bar once, and she got really excited about the answers to these biography questions she was asking me, where'd I go to school, which was Harvard, where was I working at the time, which was The Onion. And she was so thrilled. She's like, oh my God, you're like the whitest black guy I've ever oh, met. Oh no, that's horrible. And that's the extreme version, but that's, yeah. that's the code yeah. and the subtext of a lot of compliments, which is like, for one of them, you're a lot like one of us. By the way, the whitest black guy would probably be more a NASCAR lover, someone <laughs> who likes Cinnabon. Like, I as white, if if, yeah. if Harvard and The Onion are the things that connote whiteness, yeah. I'm hardly white. <laughs> you know, it's not successful. <laughs> I'd love to have, yeah. uh, you know, achieved both of those. So About Race is the name of the podcast. Baratunde and I were mostly talking about uh, black-white relationships, but... 
Raquel Cepeda. She is a Latina member of the panel. Tanner Colby, a white guy. He's really my favorite on the panel. I just, <laughs> that makes he, sense. He makes great points. <laughs> and they, they take it far and wide. Baratunde Thurston, Raquel Cepeda, Tanner Colby are the panel. The show is about race from the Panoply Network. Thank you, Baratunde. Thank you. And now the spiel. Those human-like candidates. Hillary Clinton was in South Carolina yesterday. She was having a grand old time, whittling hickory on the stump, talking about a catfish. Yay big, she caught down in the fishing hole. Well, okay, that didn't happen, but her accent definitely had some of that Illinois, Wellesley, New Haven, Little Rock, Washington, Chappaqua twang to it. It's right here in South Carolina. Former Governor Jim Hodges, we're delighted he's here. Thank you. I thought the headline in Breitbart, Hillary, exclamation, waffles, exclamation, was a mite unfair. I also thought the headline that Lindsey Graham wanted to put on it, Hillary, chicken, also not exactly right. But that accent, I'm thinking about that accent. Politicians do this because they want to relate. They want to sound like us. Now, George Pataki also wants to be seen as just like us. And to be fair, like most Americans, he is a relatively anonymous figure who didn't do that much to rebuild New York after 9-11. So that's relatable. But unlike most Americans, he was the governor of New York during that time, so it was sort of his job. Anyway, the three-term former governor threw his hat in the ring with a campaign kickoff video in an attempt to appeal to Republican voters who ain't likely to take a sheen to a city slicker. When I got elected mayor, the last thing in the world I thought about is someday I could be governor of New York State. I was this unknown person from Peekskill, not exactly Manhattan or New York City. You could just hear the voters of Iowa and South Carolina saying, now, now to get to Peekskill from Manhattan, don't you just take the Major Deegan to the Sprain Brook, hop on the Taconic, you're there in 45 minutes? It is true. It is true. Guy from imagined midway point between Gaffney and Council Bluffs. Pataki's video starts with him buttoning up his shirt and his wife helping him put on a tie. But then during the whole video, he just wears a zippered up fleece. I don't get that. Except to say, you know, he's just like us. And then there's Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio has been hurt by the just like us thing in terms of him not being like us, but also in terms of him being like us. So Marco Rubio made $174,000 as a U.S. senator. He earned a little over $50,000 from book royalties and teaching and $50,000 more from a rental property. So let's say he makes $230,000. That looks pretty great. Top 5% of earners. And so that's supposed to be the not just like us thing. But debts, the dude has debts just like us. He has four kids who all attend private school. He had $900,000 in student loans. We know that that was the case after he left the state legislature in 2008. He has since paid off his student loans. He's a Floridian, so that means he invested in some bad real estate. He's selling the house he lived in in Tallahassee that he used as a state legislature, selling it for less than he paid for it. And then, recently, all holy hell broke loose, or more accurately, major appliance broke down, and he withdrew money from an IRA, as he detailed to Fox News. So, you know, my refrigerator broke down. That was $3,000. I had to replace the air conditioning unit in our home. So the reaction to the guy with the broken fridge is, oh, he's just like us, right? No, that was not the reaction. The Washington Post asked Florida Democratic strategist Christian Olvert for comment. What do you think he's going to say? Quote, most average Americans are not buying a $3,000 refrigerator. And then they turn to Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff. 
who said of his having to withdraw from an IRA to spend money on a fridge, it means that he is probably on some level living above his means because he is borrowing against his future. Wait, wait, wait. But living beyond one's means, that is just like us. You know what? We maybe say we want a candidate who's just like us, but we really don't want that. And I don't even know how much we say it. I just think the notion's somewhat of an easy punching bag for pundits who note that, yeah, we want elites. We want an elite brain surgeon. We want an elite teacher for our kids. And we want an elite president for our country. The label elite isn't a good one. It connotes snobbery, but that's who we want. We also would like someone likable. The person's going to be our TV friend for years, so it's nice if he or she is relatable. And we don't want someone who's out of touch, because out of touch is a synonym for saying he or she doesn't understand me. But you know what? Just like us and out of touch are same stadium, but different dugouts. I'll tell you what we really want, and it comes from all people, Peekskill's own, George Elmer Pataki. That's his real middle name, Elmer, relatable, fleece. Anyway, that kickoff video, Pataki has the slogan that could win the election. Here it is. God bless you all, and lunch is on me. Yeah, although actually, no one at the New Hampshire American Legion Hall ever buys lunch. This guy is not at all like us. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Slenzi is just like us, us being defined as podcast-producing, dog-loving, and farm enthusiasts. Joel Meyer, the managing editor, also just like us, us being blonde, tattooed, prog-rock-loving fathers of children named after major late 20th century novelists. Andy Bowers, executive producer, also just like us, the cohort being podcast visionary six-foot-three former acapella group members. If you are a Slate Plus member, there is a video of me. You can see if you're just like me or us, how we put the show together. When I say it's a video of me, it's really a video of Andrea. Because when I say how we put the show together, she put the show together. But if you're not a member of Slate Plus, I think this video is the thing to get you to join. The gist. By listening, you prove you are just like us. You can't sing, but you love to. You can't pronounce proper words, but you continue to. You can't get Breaking My Stride out of your head, but you don't want to. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hi, Carrie. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Hey, Rachel. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR and Slate, The The Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Teenage Zombies, a glimpse inside the minds of teens from sleep to porn. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at itunes.com slash panoply.